Welcome to episode 12 of the 9 to 5 podcast. My name is Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. There's something rotten in the municipality of Hamilton. Of that, there seems no doubt. This week, we're doing a deep dive into Hamilton politics and a recent incident which typifies an increasingly toxic atmosphere on Hamilton Council. This has been a council that has been dogged by controversy since 2018. In 2019 alone, two major scandals, and some would say cover-ups, came to light regarding reports of a dangerous surface on the Red Hill Valley Expressway and the release of 24 billion litres of sewage into a Hamilton Creek. Council's employment of the former head of a white supremacist organisation and the mishandling of Hamilton's 2019 Pride event by uh, Hamilton Police following disruption by far-right provocateurs, had already led to a damaging breakdown of the City Hall's relationship with the Two-Spirit and LGBTQIA communities. Then, in February of this year, Council ordered the City Integrity Commissioners to investigate Cameron Kretsch, the chair of the City's LGBTQ Advisory Committee. They claimed Kretsch had inappropriately used his position as chair of the LGBTQ Advisory Committee to publicly criticise and disparage Council decisions and illegally release personal information about a member of the Police Services Board and a member of City Hall staff. On September the 24th, the Integrity Commissioners provided their conclusions, finding the key allegations to be true, and recommending that Council reprimand Kretsch and consider removing him as chair. On September the 30th, Council issued this reprimand to Kretsch, although it didn't call for his resignation. Immediately following the meeting, Councillor Terry Whitehead posted multiple tweets directed at Hamilton-based organisations and activists, asking whether the Integrity Commissioner could now investigate them and warning them, quote, it would be prudent to determine if you fall under the expanded role, unquote, of the Integrity Commissioner. The involvement of the Integrity Commissioners raises numerous questions, with it far from clear the investigation was even legal. Furthermore, the information allegedly released by Kretsch in a tweet named Nobody, while a version of the document on the City of Hamilton's website does include the names of the same people in full, which were in any case a matter of public record. Today we begin this two-part examination by speaking to Cameron Kretsch for his side of the story. Cameron is a long-standing activist for LGBTQIA issues as well as cycling and citizen engagement in general. In 2018, he was a candidate for council in the city's Ward 2, finishing in second place with 30% of the vote. For the first time, we'll have a second episode of the 9 to 5 this week. On Thursday, we'll be speaking to Joey Coleman, an independent, crowdfunded journalist and editor of the publicrecord.ca, a website which reports in detail on matters of Hamilton City Hall with a level of investigation that's really creditworthy. We also approached the City of Hamilton for comment with several questions about this story early last week. As of the time of recording, we have not yet received any answers. Welcome, Cameron, to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us uh, today. I wonder just to get us going, if you could kind of give us the the background to the story of what happened with you in, in Hamilton and the what the Integrity Commissioner did and what Council voted for last week and, and how this came to pass from your perspective. Yeah, it oddly started out more than a year ago, and the genesis of this is in May of 2019. A group of folks from LGBTQ plus communities was appointed to an advisory committee, and upon our first meeting, we're told, hey, you've got to plan this flag-raising uh, ceremony, and you've got no time to do so. Turns out that the previous iteration of the committee hadn't been meeting um, for whatever reason, and so it was put upon us. And when we came to our first meeting, and a member of our 
committee put a motion forward saying, no, I don't think we want to do it this year. We want to say no to having a flag raising, and we don't want to support that, and here's some reasons why. And they put that motion forward, and someone seconded it, and we passed the motion. And from there, it became kind of a media storm in Hamilton about the LGBTQ Advisory Committee not wanting to have this happen. And everything in our motion was you know, pretty public stuff. It wasn't as if anything in the motion was a secret to anyone. Nothing contained confidential or private information. It was run-of-the-mill stuff that had been talked about in the media recently, and there were all really good reasons we were hearing from members of communities about why they didn't want um, to do this, why they thought that they didn't have faith right now in the city to support members of LGBTQ plus communities. So that's where this started. And over the course of the next year, almost, um, there's a lot of back and forth between City of Hamilton and our committee about, you know, what should be in this motion and what shouldn't be in this motion. And we eventually settled on something, I think, in about November that met whatever guidelines. And then the, the clerk uh, surprised us, I think, in terms of, of wanting to, to redact even further. So we'd taken sort of some of the sensitive information they considered out, um, but left in things like job titles um, and a line in there about, um, you know, that was slightly critical of staff. And they wanted those things removed. Uh, they came to the committee. Uh, the committee said, we're not okay with removing these things. These things are were part of the motion. Like, this is a public thing we did in public. We passed this motion. We can't redact history. It happened. Um, going forward, we can talk about things, but we can't be redacting out uh, the history of this committee and the things it stood for. And the clerk redacted it anyway. And then in February of this year, there was some discussion online about how the committee had tried to publish the names of folks. And so what I did was said, hey, no, we didn't try and publish names of anybody. Um, we were trying to make sure that the core parts of the motion that we passed in public remain public. Um, and this thing was sat on the table. Like when I'm talking about a motion, I know it sounds so abstract, but it's literally in many ways a piece of paper that sat on a public table that people took home. People out there have copies of this thing. It's public. And so for me, I thought like this is kind of absurd. Like there's no reason why we can't share this. We passed it. And from there, uh, I guess the city then had a meeting where they ratified some of our minutes. They then had a discussion about filing a complaint against me, filed a complaint with the integrity commissioner, which I received in March of this year. So that's kind of how the story started. That's kind of how we caught up to where we are now. And then the last six months have been a little bit of a back and forth investigation. Tons of other allegations uh, came out against me, some disproved, some that the integrity commissioner thinks are, are okay. And then that council meeting last week. So that's kind of the short abbreviated timeline of where we're at. Um, I could talk more about specifics if you, if you wanted. No, well, actually it's just one point that comes out that I haven't seen mentioned in any of the media coverage of this yet is that these were collective decisions by the advisory committee. Uh, you were chair of it, but it wasn't just your decision to pursue the the line that the committee was was pursuing. The second part of that is, I mean, I guess the the background, obviously, to why the committee was opposed to a flag raising was what happened pride in in 2019 when it was kind of there were basically fascist agitators for want of a better word um created a real a real problem and then the problems with the police uh, perhaps you could go in more into that as well about that why uh, the the committee wanted to take the road that it did yeah i think a surprise for many people who are listening and online is that this had nothing to do with pride 2019 oh. so um because of the way the timing worked out right um 
this it's a it's a very good assumption to make because that current and that through current about what happened at Pride 2019 existed long before that, right? So while it may not have been directly about the actions that happened there, white supremacists and other folks showed up at Pride 2018. They showed up at Haldeman Norfolk Pride in 2018. So that current that that was there and that was something, but that wasn't part of our motion. Our motion kind of centered on four things. Um, one was employing someone in their IT department who had ties to former white supremacist organizations. Um, it had to do with them not really taking the opportunity to appoint someone from a marginalized group to the police board, though there had been very qualified applicants, and instead of choosing an auxiliary police officer to fill the only citizen seat, um, there was the issue of, according to folks in the trans community, right, them not fulfilling the mandate of their transgender protocol, which had come out in 2017. And the last one, which I think um, people miss, but I think is important, is one of the reasons we didn't want to do it was because we were bothered by the composition of our own committee. We looked around the room when we got there and said, "This doesn't meet the this doesn't meet the standards we have for for diversity in our communities, and we need you to give us more people." And what had happened is that it used to be 15. Then arbitrarily behind the scenes during the application process, they cast the committee at nine. So then we came and there were there were nine, and it was like, well, "What happened here?" So we asked for it to be put back to 15, which by the way they did do. And now we're in the, currently in the process, which is going to take years at this point to get more people onto the committee. So those are the reasons why we put this motion forward. Again, all of them public and um, one of them about our own composition. So um, that's sort of where the genesis of this is. So Cameron, this kind of stemmed from a tweet that you tweeted back in February of 2019, if I'm not mistaken, is what, what kind of started this whole brouhaha with the integrity commissioner. I've seen the tweet that you sent out and this the city claimed that you released private information of two individuals. I've seen the tweet. No names were named. There's no like, social security numbers, no confidential information that would have been on city payroll or no addresses, nothing, no phone numbers, and nothing like that. There's a, two vague descriptions of the individuals in question, the positions that they held with the city, and quite frankly, any of the information. I did a Google search for the individuals in question. They're all using the, using the criteria that you that you sent out, and you can find it in any media publication in the area in the time. What are your thoughts on on that? Do you think that you crossed the line that you that you may have, in retrospect, may have given too much information there? No, to be short about it. Okay. Um, when I put this tweet out in February of this year, February 2020, um, one of the one of the things I have reflected on about this is if I put this tweet out and there was no corroborating public information about these individuals in the public realm, would anyone know who they were? And the answer is absolutely not. So that there are many people in the city's IT department, right? Which one um, am I talking about, right? Which one is the committee speaking about? Um, and, and by virtue of the very position that police service board members find themselves in, their information is public. It's a really silly single, you know, roll the dice kind of situation over there, right? There's only so many people that can be appointed. And so, um, and only so many by the city. There's only four. So you would just kind of go through the process of elimination and say to yourself, well, one is the mayor, the other two are city councilors, must be this guy. But that's all public information. That's all part of the public realm. It's a part of how we do things. And the notion that any of this is private to me is absurd. 
um, at all, any of it's private, even releasing individual names, um, which I didn't do. But even if I had, again, is not, I don't think private information when we're talking about people um, in their business roles. Um, what can we say about people if we can't factually state the position they hold? Um, I don't know what to do with that. I don't understand right. um, how people are supposed to communicate. But I will say this is not about, and I've said this many times in other interviews, the major thing I take away from this, and I want people to take away from this, is this is not about and has never been about private or personal information. Never for one second. This is about stifling criticism. And the obvious fact of that is the line that's redacted out in there, which says that um, talks about apparent measures staff may have taken to you know, not investigate this further. That's the original wording from the original motion that never had a person's name in it. That's simply just trying to silence criticism of city staff. And this committee has the right to make that criticism. It's an advisory committee and it gives advice. When you signed on to the committee, were you given any guidance uh, in terms of interacting with the public, any guidance about your personal social media channels from the city clerk's office or from any other body in the city of Hamilton when you first signed on to this board? I was given a handbook and there was some training and the training kind of, I would say, skimmed skimmed some of that, nothing I really recall in detail. And the handbook itself has a kind of strange appendix in there that talks about correspondence. Um, and it talks first about correspondence and it talks about speaking to the media. It's, it's a little bit muddy. And I think everyone in the city knows that the handbook needs to be updated and the code of conduct are uh, extremely vague. So I remember being in a position where it was May of last year, the motion had just been passed and media were now calling me. And I just had been elected chair of this committee five seconds ago. And um, this is my first time ever being on the committee. It just had started. I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't know what to do next here. Um, can I speak to the media or not? So I did the thing I think that everyone should do in a situation like that is I emailed our city staff and said, hey, I've got a request from the media. Um, what do I do with this? And they wrote back saying, look, this is what you can and can't say. Make sure you express your personal views as personal. I even got a phone call from someone at the city saying, hey, like, we don't want to stop you from talking to the media. You have every right to speak about the public decisions you made in public to the public media, right? As long as you're not deviating from what you talked about in public, as long as you're not um, straying from the discussions the committee had in public, there's nothing wrong with you reporting that information as long as it's factual. If at some point you want to deviate and give your own opinion, go ahead. But And so I did uh, when when I would, when it would deviate from what the committee talked about. I would say, hey, these are my personal thoughts. And it's worth pointing out here, because many people won't be familiar, that advisory committees are public meetings, just like a council meeting is. Anybody can turn up. In my experience, nobody ever does, but you can do. <laughs> and maybe in Hamilton, you have a better turnout. But, you know, anything you say there is already a matter of public record, in effect. Now, with regard to the investigation by the Integrity Commissioner, there's all kinds of issues, shall we say, there. Were you told at any point that, the integrity commissioner that what you said as a member of an advisory committee could be investigated by an integrity commissioner. No, I had no idea. That was probably the only thing I've been surprised about in all of this is getting the complaint from the integrity commissioner. I just didn't see that coming. I mean, council has had the authority to do whatever they wanted this entire time. If they found my conduct to be a problem, all they had to do at a meeting, any public meeting was just pass 
you know, pass a reprimand, do whatever they want to do. So to ha- they don't need an investigation of the integrity commissioner to do that. They possess within their own organization all the information they need. And so having, uh, you know, two folks being uh, hired to do this was never discussed and was never something that I had any idea could happen. And if I could say, it's an extreme instrument to be using against a volunteer. I think it's important to unpack this isn't like the integrity commissioner sounds like they have an office somewhere in city hall and they're just taking calls from the public. Like it sounds like this thing, but it's not that thing. It's um, a company that's run by two individuals. One, the former city solicitor for the city of Hamilton up until not too long ago, which screams conflict of interest to me personally. I'm not a lawyer, but like that doesn't seem to be ethically okay. Um, And the other person is a, former city clerk from the city of Vaughan. And so both are lawyers, as far as I know, I could be wrong about that, but I'm sure, pretty sure both are lawyers and both are very experienced in um, municipal law and municipal legal circles. And you're taking these two very experienced individuals and having them investigate a citizen volunteer from a marginalized community. And that sends and will continue to send a deeply chilling message to people for, and make them think twice. I've had people reaching out to me saying, I'd love to say something in public. I'd love to write a letter to the editor. I'd love to do all this stuff. But now what's happened to you has made me consider that maybe I can't say, maybe I can't speak out as a member of an advisory committee, right? Um, and so others from those committees have, have already felt the impact of this. People who I think would they be surprised to learn, hey, even that person, yeah, even that person, everybody on an advisory committee now is worried. They don't want a six-month investigation to them personally um, because they might write a letter to the editor. So, um, yeah, it's, it's bizarre, I think, to be doing this. And as far as I know, it's unprecedented for a city to use their Integrity Commissioner Ontario in this way. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but there's a city of Ottawa a number of years ago now put out um, a kind of study of all their committees and city committees and advisory committees. And they found that advisory committees just weren't, weren't subject to these kinds of, these kinds of things and shouldn't be. Yeah. And again, anybody not familiar with it, advisory committees, these are volunteer organizations. Many people join advisory committees basically as kind of a hobby. You know, they want to give back to the city. They want to contribute in whatever way. But it's not meant to be a seriously heavy-duty kind of experience like this. What do you think the the real background is here? Is this staff annoyed that you criticized them? Is this council? You you ran ran for council in, in 2018 as a candidate, and I ran in Burlington as a candidate. And I know that changes how you are viewed, and I don't think that's right. But do you think that's part of what's going on here? I think it's a couple of things. I think that... This is a response in general to what I think is council's kind of inability and city council in general in Hamilton's inability to process criticism in an environment they don't control. So they've lashed out lately about social media and all kinds of other things. And um, I'm kind of the only person that they can come after for this because I fall within the machinery of the city of Hamilton. So I'm on a city committee that's official. I'm the chair of that committee. I'm someone who's rather outspoken, and they can use the city's instruments, or so they think, to come after me. But I think it's about um, sending a message. I think it's about um, a, a big problem in our civic institutions around accountability and transparency. As I said to someone else, and I think it's important to say again, it's clear to everyone who's watching City Hall in Hamilton 
that they don't know how to receive feedback, to take it in, to process it, what to do with it in any kind of meaningful way. It seems city staff are in the same boat. So it seems like a cultural problem, right? It seems like something is happening in it at an endemic level. And the only way out of this for them is by partnering with reliable, trusted folks in the community, reaching out to individuals, and I guess really relearning how to do engagement in a meaningful way. They're never going to get there if their tactic is to threaten, silence um, people who are trying to come forward. I mean, there was a delegation about uh, trying to calm a road down that about 670 kids a day were crossing to try to calm this road down in Hamilton. And someone came forward, one of those parents who takes their kid by the hand across the road and shared a very heartwarming story and some very chilling stories about their experiences trying to cross this road. And counselors cross-examined him as if it was a trial. So this is, again, part of a culture of a long time going on of, of treating those who come forward with advice um, with a kind of contempt. And, and as I said before, 100% of this wouldn't be happening if the comments I made were glowing and positive about the city of Hamilton, we wouldn't be here. So what is advocacy and what is advice? And again, I think that it's a sense thing the city and city staff are really struggling with. Cameron, on that note, I'm curious to know what's been the personal toll of this whole ordeal on you so far? Um, I'll say from the outset that I'm probably more likely to be insulated from this than most people. I've lost a privilege. So I'm able to connect with people. I was able to find a lawyer quickly. Um, my partner has a good job. I have a good job. Um, I was able to take some time off um, when things were really stressful. So I'm in a pretty good position, even though it is a pandemic. That being said, I mean, the company I'm, I'm with, well, we closed for four months. And the day we closed was the day I got the letter from the integrity commissioner. So that was hard. And it's been hard because I, at first I didn't know what to do truthfully. And it's not like I don't have experience with municipal procedures. And I used to be the president of a union. Um, I've, I've been in a lot of negotiations and uh, other kinds of uh, things that are stress and stressful and tough. But this kind of came out of the blue. And when I got the complaint, I thought, what does this mean legally? What does this mean personally? Like, what can they do? What are the outcomes? And so I just spent a lot of time racking my brain about whether or not I should stay on this committee, whether I should keep doing this work, whether it was worth it, because it's, it's six months of silence. I mean, I could have spoken out about this sooner, um, but the process happened in such a weird way that like, I didn't even really understand what the allegations were against me until maybe about August. So I really wasn't comfortable talking about this until I could, could sort of formally understand like, what is it they're actually accusing me of? Which parts of this code of conduct are they saying I violated? And so between March and August, it was just this really um, awkward period of seeing people in my life and talking to them and not being able to really say how you're doing. It's super, super stressful. Um, and yeah, very debilitating to personal relationships, hard to focus on other things. And I think I don't wish anyone to have to go through this kind of thing. I think the only reason it was even handled as quickly as possible um, is because of, I think, uh, insistence that this be resolved quickly from where I don't know. Um, but I am grateful for that, frankly, because to have this dragged out for another six months, I don't know where I'd be. And the very speed with which this has, in city terms, this has been carried out, contrasts with similar complaints that have been made against councillors, which is the more traditional role of the Integrity Commissioner to look into complaints against councillors, which have either 
dragged on for really long periods of time or just been dismissed. Now, Councillor Marula was featured in the in the news recently for threatening a CHCH journalist, uh, and, and this was recorded. You know, we have the have the sound recording of it, and allegedly also threatening the owner of a gym. And this, with great speed, kind of seems to have been dismissed. Now, those seems to be far more serious allegations to me, um, uh, certainly given that we can actually hear threats being made in one case. Why do you think the Integrity Commission has taken an, a different view there? I think that we've become accustomed to living inside of a technicality. I think it's dangerous and it's harmful, and that's where we're at. And we've lost something in Hamilton around like what it seems reasonable to do or decent to do. Um, I don't want to turn this into a moral argument, but I think that's part of it here, right? You know, while the person complaining was the person who owned the club maybe out in Kitchener or the employee there, and so Kitchener is not the jurisdiction of Hamilton, and I'll leave the rest of that for people who want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, there's many other similar types of situations like that that I think um, technicalities, right? Uh, the parties were able to resolve the matter, whatever that means. Um, but, but here's the thing that I find troubling. Every single one of the colleague, their colleagues on city council watched these things happen. But what continues to happen in politics in, outside of Hamilton in Hamilton is politicians are waiting around for grassroots communities and volunteers to solve political problems for them. It's easier for them to solve these problems by just casting a vote. Right? It's, it's about putting a motion on a table. Yeah, it requires some bravery. Your colleagues are going to punish you if you use certain things in public. Um, but we didn't elect you to um, play these kinds of games. Why didn't any other city councilor, having seen the threats against the media, file a complaint against their colleagues? Why are they waiting for um, folks in the public to do that? And I think that's the problem is that there's a burden. There's a, there's a fee of 100 bucks first of all, to file these complaints as a citizen. And there are other kinds of issues and reasons why somebody wouldn't want to take these kinds of things on, right? Um, you were not, the regular public is not insulated the way that a city councilor is insulated. And so the silence that's there is a cultural silence and it's a permissive silence and it's one that allows these things to happen. And every time someone threatens someone, every time someone berates them during a council meeting, every time an integrity commissioner complaint is filed against a volunteer and nothing happens, it, it just adds another layer to the cultural, you know, uh, mess over there and let people feel like they can get away with doing this, that they're empowered to do it. And as you saw, Councillor Terry Whitehead, immediately after the reprimand was issued against me, then came after the Hamilton Center for Civic Conclusion by saying, maybe the integrity commissioner falls to you. And then started coming after individual citizens, saying, maybe the integrity commissioner can come after you. If that's not a clear enough indication of what's going on here, I don't know what is. Yeah, absolutely. That that was absolutely appalling behaviour, even if it is ridiculous, you know, uh, and yeah. Um, I, I just want to kind of touch upon what uh, you just said there about Councillor Whitehead. In the LGBTQ community, what's the attitude towards what's been going on? Because um, I can't imagine that relationships between this community and City Council are going quite well. Uh, right now with this uh, this looming overhead. Could you maybe give us a little bit of insight into how that relationship is working out right now? Yeah, I should first say, like, I can't speak for everybody, and even this committee can't speak for everybody, and I happen to be a board member at Pride, and Pride doesn't speak for the whole community. So 
I don't really know how each each group in the community or individuals are feeling about this. I will say that many people from um, LGBTQ plus communities have reached out and offered support. I've seen a lot online uh, discussions from folks in those communities saying they feel targeted, saying they feel like this is a further kind of silencing, right? When Pride happened in 2019, many people came forward to tell their stories and to talk about what had happened to them and to speak about the sort of homophobia latent or otherwise in this community and transphobia latent or otherwise, right? Came forward and talked about those kinds of things publicly. And we're told by the city, yeah, we don't really believe you. We need to go get this other person to investigate it. They came back and said, yep, everything the community said was cool. And still there's been no real, real relationship building happening there. We live in a city where in my participation in Pride started, you know, as a volunteer in 2018. But since 2018, we live in a city where the mayor of the city of Hamilton has not attended Pride in the last couple of years, or if ever. I don't know if he's ever been, I can't say. But wasn't there a 2018 Pride? Wasn't there a 2019 Pride? What's that about? I mean, this is a kind of strange affect. You look at Toronto, you look at other cities, small cities around Ontario, actually, and you see that's a staple thing happening is that even if the mayor's not giving remarks, even if the mayor's not centrally figured in the parade, the mayor is at pride and is walking around and talking to people in a comfortable and normal way. Here, the guy doesn't even show up. So it's a long pattern and a long history of problems we've had here in the city. I don't think it's getting better. There are people who know much more than I do who can talk about that. But this has sent a definite message to people in marginalized communities all across the city, but especially to LGBTQ plus folks, that your criticism isn't wanted and isn't welcome. I think um, it's a fascinating story we've dealt extensively over the last few weeks with the apparent malaise that we're seeing on council. Um, and, you know, it should be pointed out that of the entire council, only two members voted against the motion to censor you, which is just disappointing, that, to say the least. I was surprised, given that there's meant to be a cabal of three people that didn't at least reach the, uh, the three people level. Um so we'll be following this as we go forward, and we really appreciate you giving us the time today to go into it and give us your side of the story. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much to Cameron Kretsch for joining us and spending so much time with us this week. We also want to do some thank yous today for some people who've been helping us with the podcast. I want to mention Gail Laws, who's been doing research, background research for us on a number of issues that will be coming up in future weeks. And also Wendy Nicholson, who has very kindly uh, come on board to help us with sound editing of these episodes. And we also need to mention again the Quadraphonics, who are providing us with the excellent music. Now over to you, Joel, for the social media. Yes, make sure that you like and subscribe on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on so that you do not miss part two, which releases this Thursday with our interview with Joey Coleman. As well, please like and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We are The905er on all the apps that you subscribe to. As well, if you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, or criticisms, feel free to email it to us at info at 905er.ca. Thanks very much, and we'll talk to you Thursday. Bye for now.
Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. <laughs>